meet you yet. My name is Adrian Pina, and I have the opportunity to serve as the interim pastor here at Firewell Bible Fellowship. We are really glad that you are here today. If you're joining us online, welcome as well. And I want to echo the sentiments of Ashby and Chris earlier. Um, worship night was amazing. It's amazing sometimes just to collectively come together and have no agenda except to worship Jesus. And just to sit at the feet of Jesus. And so um, looking forward to the next time we get the opportunity to do that. So this morning we are beginning a new series. And I'm calling this series Riding the Waves. And so let me tell you a little bit about the genesis, so to speak, of this series. This series comes from a family trip a number of years ago now to Wildwood, New Jersey. Anybody here ever been to the Jersey Shore? Every, anybody ever been to the Jersey Shore? Okay, we got a few people who have been to the Jersey Shore, and I'm not talking about the MTV TV show. And no, when I lived in Jersey, I did not meet Snooky, you know, so, uh, um, but when people are very passionate in the Jersey, in Jersey about their shore, their shore point is what they call it, basically where they go to the beach, because half the state is right on the ocean, right? And so, uh, so there's multiple different spots where you can kind of get into your shore point and Wildwood being one of the, uh, the famous ones. So we'll talk a little bit about kind of the origin of this as we get into the message. But the main idea of this series is that God has made us as emotional beings. Did you know that God created you with the capacity to experience emotion? And emotion is not a bad thing. Sometimes emotion gets a bad rap. But that being said is we can experience emotions most of the time, just like we do at the beach, we can experience them in waves. Sometimes they come in waves. Sometimes emotions creep up, you don't even know when they're coming, when that, that wave of grief comes along or when that wave of fear comes along, you're not expecting it. And we kind of go through life and we experience these emotions in waves. And if we're not paying attention, then these emotions, instead of being able to experience them the way that God wants us to experience them and to actually kind of push through them sometimes, they could take us under, just like a current. We could get crashed by the wave and the wave take us under. But with God's help, we could ride the waves and not crash and be able to experience it the way in which he wants to, us to experience it. So in this series, we're going to talk about how we can respond to certain emotions in a healthy way. We're going to start today by talking about fear. But in this series, we're going to cover things like regret. We're going to cover doubt. We're going to cover grief. We're going to cover anger. We're going to cover some of these different very key emotions, these emotions that we all experience as part of the human condition. Okay, so as I mentioned, today we're going to start with a biggie. We're going to start with the emotion of fear. Now I want to ask you all a question this morning. What are you afraid of? Some of y'all, we can, we can participate, some of y'all just shout it out to me. What are some of the things that you're afraid of and you're, not, you're willing to confess and admit to those things that you're afraid of? Huh? Money? Financial, yes, yes. Uh, anybody else got any financial fears, right? So yes, financial fears are a very real reality. What else? Health? Heights. That's me too. I'm on that one. I'm on that train. I don't, the knees get all shaky like jello when, when I get, when it get to a high place. I don't do heights. So what else? Roller coasters, okay. All right, roller coasters, yeah. The dark, all right. Fear the dark. Maybe one more. What'd you say? People. <laughs> Sometimes people can't be scary, that's for sure. But, uh, but we all have our various different types of fears. And some of those fears may seem trivial. But sometimes fear can actually paralyze us. Have you ever been so gripped with fear that you felt like you didn't know what to do? You felt like you couldn't move? You, it, it, just like you were stuck. You had no idea how to respond. Fear can paralyze you. If we don't process and we work through it in a healthy way. So I want to show you a chart real quick. So every year, I ran across this a number of years ago, and every year I always look at this. There's a school called Chapman University. And Chapman University does a survey every year called the Chapman University Survey on American Fears. They include a random sample of adults 18 plus years old nationwide, and this is done online. And the 2022 edition just released, and uh, it results from 1,020 people who took this survey, and the data was collected from April 5th of this year through April 15th, okay? So this is fresh off the press. So I put on this chart because I could only fit them. I, I put the top five. 
So here are the top five fears of Americans in 2022, according to this survey. Number one, corrupt government officials. Number two, people I love becoming seriously ill. That's a real reality, right? Number three, Russia using nuclear weapons against us or against the world. Number four, people I love dying. And number five, the U.S. becoming involved in another world's war. And if you continue on, the next number of them talk about things like the environment, pollution, not having enough money financially as we talked about, some of those other different things as well. Now, what's interesting is I think a lot of times fear is also something that we can get caught up in. And it's really, if you look at some of this stuff, you could probably say, well, it depends a lot of sometimes the things that you consume. What are you consuming that is cultivating and, and feeding these fears in some ways? But that being said, my top two was definitely heights. And this guy does not like clowns. So don't bring clowns around me. I don't do clowns. I have, I have traumatic stories with clowns growing up, okay? So I have a thing with clowns. I don't mess with clowns, all right? So that being said. But here's what's interesting, is that fear itself is not a bad emotion. As a matter of fact, fear is an adaptive natural behavior. Fear is something that our body naturally responds to when we have a perceived threat that is either real or imagined that we experience. It's a protective emotion. It's an integral part of the way in which God made us. It is a part of life. In many ways, fear can protect us from suffering harm. If you see a hungry-looking lion or some type of wild animal in the horizon, fear's going to tell you, don't go near it. Don't go pet Yogi the bear. All right? If you see him, leave him alone. Okay? So fear tells us naturally in that way it's a protective mechanism. But our reaction to fear is what matters. How we respond to fear is critical because, like I said, it has the power to paralyze or it has the power to do its natural thing, what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to be a warning mechanism. Fear is kind of like your check engine light on your dashboard. It's warning you that there's a problem underneath the hood. It is a problem that needs to be addressed. There's something that's going on and how, why are you responding? It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an indicator for you to stop at that moment and process why you're responding the way that you're responding. Is the, is the threat real? That could be a very real reality. Or is this something that's just imagined, that we're perceiving, that is causing us to feel a certain way? Here's our one true statement this morning. Our one true statement is this, is that faith in Christ overcomes our deepest fears. Faith in Christ overcomes our deepest fears. Now, I realize saying that statement sounds like, oh, pastor, that's cute. That's a really nice statement. I am not going to begin to pretend that it's easy to walk out that reality, but it doesn't make it less true. Christ did not give us a spirit of fear, Scripture says, but give us the spirit of a sound mind, right? There's lots of different ways in which we can interact, and we're going to talk about that today. I'm going to see a case study of how two individuals responded to fear and how they threw themselves literally at the feet of Jesus. So if you have your Bible, you want to open with me, we're going to find ourselves in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Mark 25, starting at verse 21. We're going to look at 21 through 43. We're going to cover a lot of scripture today. But we're going to look at two specific individuals who had different types of crisis. And in the midst of their crisis situation, we're going to see how they responded to their fear and how they overcome fear with faith. Okay, so we're going to look at two individuals. Now let me set the stage for you because we're jumping right in the middle of a passage. So Mark chapter 5, this is one miracle, by the way. This is one story that appears in three different Gospels. You find this account in Luke, you find it in Mark, and you also find it in Matthew. So it's really important that three Gospel writers actually acknowledge the story that we're going to read today. But Mark chapter 5 is telling the story, three different stories about Jesus coming into contact with people who needed a miracle. The beginning part of the chapter starts with Jesus healing a demon-possessed person. And if we read Luke's account, Luke's account actually tells us that after he heals the demon-oppressed person, the people run him out of town. They tell him, get away. Like, they saw this magnificent miracle and they're like scared of what's happening now and they basically chase Jesus out of town. So we see him come in contact with a demon-possessed person a woman who is bleeding with an issue of blood and also a dead body. 
These three very significant and different kind of scenarios are all told in Mark chapter 5, of which we're going to focus on the last two. Jesus had just healed a person, as I said, and people kick him out of town. So then when we pick up the story, he went across the sea and he's met by a very large group of people as he arrives on shore. And this is where the text begins. So let's look at Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 21. Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 21, and the first person we're going to get introduced to is a man by the name of Jairus. Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, what did he do? He fell at his feet. It's important. He fell at his feet. Look at verse 23. And implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. So Jesus is going with Jairus to go to his house, to go ahead and to be able to address this situation with his daughter. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So let me pose this question. What is Jairus' main fear? His main fear is number four, according to the top ten that I just showed you on the list. He fears that somebody who he loves is significantly ill. And that death is on, it's on her doorstep. So if you're a dad and you had possible terminal news about your daughter, do you think you'd be a little afraid? Do you think you'd be able to you would try to utilize and do whatever you needed to do to potentially get her the level of care that she needed so that way God, you, you would just, you'd be so desperate to see God intervene in the situation. So if we look at, who is this guy Jairus, by the way? I put together a little word map just to pull out some indicators of what we're told in the text. So number one is he's, official, he's an official of the synagogue. So he's not a priest, but an official of the synagogue is kind of like the key administrator. Think about it in the context of a church. He's like the executive assistant or key administrator of a church. He'd be like the treasurer. He'd be like the guy doing all the administration. So he's an important person. He oversaw the daily operations and business of the synagogue. He was also possessed power. He possessed privilege, prestige, position, and prominence. He was a community leader. He would have been a person who was respected within the Jewish community. He would have been somebody potentially who was looked up to. He would have been, he would have been somebody that the Jewish community would have recognized as a person of importance. He likely would have been a wealthy man with a fine home and with servants. He was a deeply religious man who faithfully practiced the Jewish faith. You could not be an administrator in the synagogue if you are not a devout Jew. So you can easily deduce that reality that if he's a leader in the synagogue, then he had to be, he was a devout Jew. Jairus, by all accounts, had all the resources a human person would need, and yet it still wasn't enough. Still wasn't enough. From a human perspective, he had everything that he needed to get his daughter the best medical care. He could care flight her to Mayo Clinic in Cleveland. He could take her across the world to wherever she needed to to see some specialist doctor. He had every resource needed, and yet he still could do nothing. How about producing some fear in you when you have, by all accounts, everything that you would need, and yet you still couldn't do anything? You felt powerless. You felt paralyzed because you couldn't do anything about it. And yet, here's this man who's a religious leader of a faith that basically spoke down to Jesus, waiting for him at the shore. He's putting all his eggs in the Jesus basket. Obviously, he believes Jesus could do something. So he's at a point of desperation. He's like, I don't care. And he did what is not proper. Here's this religious leader, and he bows at Jesus' feet. And he just says, help my daughter. And when it says, the scripture says that he, he spoke earnestly, it's not just like, oh, Jesus, it'd be really nice if you could help my daughter. I really would like it if you can come. I'll make it, I'll set a nice place for you at our table. No, you could picture him like bowing down, screaming out, crying out, Jesus, help! Help my daughter! She's dying. There's nothing I can do. I think Jairus' response is the perfect response of every believer. 
Here's a principle for you. Our response to fear is to fall at the feet of Jesus. That's what Jairus does. He falls at the feet of Jesus. Hopelessly, not hopelessly, I mean, but desperately, he just falls at the feet of Jesus. He doesn't have to have answers. He doesn't have to have theological presuppositions. He's not having certain questions in his mind answered. He doesn't care who this Jesus guy is, whether or not Jews like him or dislike him. All he knows is that he's heard about this guy. He's been healing people. I need to go to him because he may be able to do something for my daughter. And I don't care about my position. I don't care about my prestige. I don't care about my person. I don't care about any of those things. All I care about is I have a dying daughter and I, she needs Jesus. So he falls at the feet of Jesus. Because faith in Christ overcomes our deepest fears. But look at verse 35. Jump down to verse 35. We're going to come back to the woman's story. This woman interrupts this story right in the middle, and we're going to come back to her. But verse 35, while he was still speaking, after Jesus heals this woman, then he proceeds to start going with Jairus again. While he's still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, you need to underline this, you need to underline this, you need to underline this. Do not fear, only believe. I'm going to tell you the significance of that, especially in the Greek. Do not fear, only believe. So here is Jairus who is pleading to Jesus to come and intervene in the midst of his daughter's situation. He just witnesses a miracle. So he witnesses a woman who has an issue of blood for 12 years, gets miraculously healed. Jesus declares her to be healed, and we're going to come back to her story. He witnesses this, but yet a report comes to him that immediately changes all of it. And I don't know about you, but if I'm a dad and that report comes, it's going to change all of it as well. Your daughter's dead. Don't bother to bring Jesus anymore. What's he going to do now? She's no longer living. Don't bother him anymore. So immediately Jairus' response, which is very natural, and I could totally see myself in this place being doing the same thing. His response goes from one of faith, because initially he's there, he's like, he believes that Jesus can do something, it immediately goes from faith to fear. And it goes to unbelief. Because naturally speaking, his daughter has stopped living. But that's what's so beautiful about what Jesus says to him. That's what's so beautiful about it. Here's a principle for you. Life circumstances can be a major catalyst for fear. And you know the reason why that is? It's because sometimes life circumstances, they hit us in the face and they are so in front of our face that we lose and we lose sight of God. Those circumstances become so big and our God shrinks down. Those circumstances become so all-consuming that we can't see the God who has the whole entire picture, who resides up here and he resides beyond and he resides around all of those circumstances. It becomes so, it's just the only thing we see. But listen to the words of Jesus. What does Jesus tell him? The report comes, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? But Jesus says, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear. So obviously he knows fear is being prompted in his heart, but he says, do not fear, only believe. I love this phrase because Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you believed in me to come meet me at the shoreline. I was going with you, now all of a sudden you stop believing, I ain't going with you now. Why'd you stop believing all of a sudden just because this report came in? No, Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus sees that fear is creeping up in his heart. And what does he tell him? He tells him, just believe. But here's the beautiful thing is in Greek, the phrase only believe denotes this continued action. So what Jesus is essentially telling him, do, new, do not lose faith, but keep believing. Just like you believed when you came to the shoreline, do not lose faith, keep believing. Just like you believed in desperation and you knew I could do something, keep believing. The situation hasn't changed because I haven't changed. Just keep believing. That's what he's telling him. Just keep believing. It doesn't matter what the report is. All that matters is who's coming to the house. Who's coming? That's what matters. I love that. I love that. Did you know that the phrase, do not be afraid, 
in some form appears roughly about 100 times in the Bible. Apparently fear is a big problem. And it's something that we are consistently told to not do over and over and over again. But the reason we can overcome and face fear is because our faith, and faith is in someone that has proven time and time again that he is greater. And that he is beyond that realm and that we can trust him because he's proven himself to be trustworthy. I want you right now, I'm going to give you a practice point right now. I want you to write a statement. If you have a sermon guide, I want you to write this statement on your sermon guide. Or if you have something, if you have your cell phone, pull it out, write down this note. I want you to write this statement. And I, you don't have to answer it now, but I want you to wrestle with this. And I want you to answer this question. Here's the phrase. I'm going to give you a fill in the blank. I will not be afraid any longer of blank. Whatever it is. Because I believe Jesus is greater. Take a picture with it on your cell phone, whatever. I will not be afraid any longer of blank because I believe Jesus is greater. Do you believe that Jesus is greater than your greatest fear? Do you believe that you serve a God who is all-powerful? Do you believe that you serve a God who's all-faithful? Do you believe that you serve a God who knows your fear and speaks to that fear and says, do not be afraid, keep believing? I believe in a God like that. I hope that your God is big in your view like that as well. Let that be your prayer. Hang it on your fridge. Hang it at work. Put it in your car. Whatever it may be. When that fear rises up, say, I'm not going to believe. I'm going to not be afraid any longer of that. I'm not going to be afraid any longer of financial potential ruin because I believe Jesus is greater and, he know, and he's going to provide for me. I'm not going to be afraid of my physical health because I know that this body is a temporal thing, but that I know that regardless if death comes to this body, that I know that I'll be with him for eternity. Whatever it may be. Look at verse 37. The story doesn't end there. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Then they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Yeah, I would imagine so. But look at verse 39. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. Now, you read this verse, if you don't understand who's coming to the house, obviously Jesus didn't attend sensitivity training. Because if you read this verse, it's like, man, that's cold, what he's saying. I mean, that's like, that's not what I'd say in the midst of that. You know, I've done a lot of grief counseling with people. I don't know if I'd walk into the house and make that statement, okay? But here's the thing is I think that Jesus is being so direct because Jesus already gave an indication of what he's going to do. He's addressing their unbelief. He's saying that your situation looks very grim right now, but remember, I was already coming. Remember, I told you. Remember, you had enough faith in me to believe. I'm here right now, so you need to stop. You need to realize that your fear needs to turn to faith. I'm here. I'm at the house. I can do something to this situation. And they laughed at him. But he put all them outside, and he took the child's father and mother I love the fact that he took them with him so that they could see what he was going to do. So he takes the child's father and mother and those who are with him and went into where the child was, verse 41, and taking her by the hand, he said to her, Tathilia kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. That's the understatement of the century. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. Amazing miracle. The first time we see Jesus accounted in the Gospels is raising somebody from the dead, and it's a 12-year-old girl. Now, if you go to the Jersey Shore, you might likely see a sign like the one that's behind me. Now, if you see this sign, a lot of times you'll actually see two signs. It'll say, no swimming between these two signs. And it'll have a sign spaced out one here and have one spaced out there. And the reason why you have those signs is because you get these decent-sized waves. And you get something called a rip current. Now, just look it up. I ain't going to explain to you the science behind a rip current, but just look it up. So, in, you know, at the shore we get these things called rip currents. So, 
You're not supposed to swim between those two signs because it's potentially dangerous for you to be able to do that. So when you are swimming in the Jersey Shore, and a lot of times when the water's a little rough, you almost get rocked forward and rocked back. You got a current coming behind you and something coming forward toward you. So if you see a wave that is coming toward you, you will see everybody inevitably do this. Now, what do you think is the appropriate response if you see a wave that's crashing toward you? So if you jump, seems like counterintuitive, right? It's like, why would I jump? You do, you jump. So when you see this wave coming towards you, instead of like freaking out or just staying there and taking the brunt of it, you jump, you jump into the wave. On a human side, that seems like that doesn't compute. Like, why would I jump into the aggressive thing that's coming toward me? But by actually jumping into the wave, you, the wave breaks over you. And then you're able to kind of like flow through it. Now, if you do not jump into the wave, then you will experience the rip current. The wave will knock you down and suck you under, and then basically you will kind of be like in this like vortex. It's pretty trippy when it happens. And you're basically like sucked under, and then it kind of like spits you out. And you experience like it's very dangerous. I mean, that it could potentially happen to you. So here's my point. Is that when we are experiencing this wave that we call fear, Jairus had to come face to face with his fear. Now, was he going to jump in or was he going to crash underneath? You can imagine as a father seeing the lifeless body of your daughter. He had to be in that room, I believe. So Jesus, what Jesus did was seared into his mind forever. I don't know about you, but if I saw my daughter getting, say, rise up and arise and walk, and she came back to life, it's going to be seared in my mind forever. And that memory would serve to remind him that next time fear comes into your mind, just remember what I did. So that way you can stand up, you can be able to absorb what's coming your way and let it crash over you because your God is faithful and already shown himself to be powerful. Sometimes we got to remind ourselves that our God is faithful and he is powerful. Sometimes we got to remember back to what he has done. To know that he is able. So when we fear, face fearful situations, sometimes it's not for easy for us to believe in Jesus. Our confidence can be shaken. The world and other people, just like they were there, they could be laughing at us. But what we have to do is say, you know what? No, my God has shown himself to be faithful. He is strong. I've overcome these waves before. And as wave after wave, it comes over me, just waves after waves of grace come over me as well, that I can ride this wave and I can come through on the other side because God is with me. Let's go back to the woman. Go back to verse 25. So we see Jairus, this religious leader, we see how he responds in the midst of this. He comes initially with lots of faith, desperate kind of faith, the kind of faith you want to see, and then all these circumstances change, and yet he sees this miraculous thing that happens. Now let's talk about this woman. Look at verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Interesting number, right? 12 years, just like the girl was 12 years old. And who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. How disappointing is that? Financially in ruin because she spent everything she had and still her condition did not improve. She had heard the reports about Jesus and had come up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. That's incredible faith. That's incredible faith, that statement. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd is pressing around you, right? Jesus, there's a whole lot of folk over here. A whole bunch of people touching you. You realize what's going on, right? But he says... Uh, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see you had done it. Verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, what, how did she respond? She came in fear. She came trembling. She didn't know how Jesus was going to respond to what had just happened. She receives a miracle, and yet she comes trembling in fear in front of Jesus. She came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This woman was hemorrhaging for 12 plus years. Now, 
uh, with a continuous issue of blood, whatever that means. And guys, for us, that's even hard for us to be able to compute, those of us of the male species. So I'm not even going to try to go there. And we don't have to get all scientifical right now. We just understand this is a major issue going on for 12 years. But this being said is that who knows the underlying things that could have happened by having this issue. Could she have been anemic, various other different uh, medical conditions that compounded on top of the reality of what was going on? Who knows? We don't know that. But we know that her suffering is great. This woman's suffering was so great, we can highlight a number of fears that she had to overcome that the passage tells us to be able to get to Jesus. Number one is she had a health issue. She had a health crisis. In her health crisis, this consistent loss of blood had been treated by many doctors with no success. So she's likely discouraged by this reality. She's kind of last-ditch effort putting all her eggs in the Jesus basket. And she is coming to Jesus because she has exhausted all of the health possibilities that she could get. Secondly, she had to overcome the fear of loneliness. Interestingly, she was considered unclean because of her bleeding. So whatever she touched, so she physically touched this, if she touched another person, all of those people, according to the Jewish law, would become unclean. And to become unclean, that means they had to go through a ritual of cleansing in order to allow them to be able to worship at the temple. So they would have not been able to go to the temple to worship. They, it would have been like you walking into church today and a security guy saying, ah, uh -uh, you can't come in today. You can't come in today because you're unclean. You need to do all these different ritual things. Come back in seven days. Maybe you'll be clean enough. Then you can come back. Well, guess what? There's no way she could become clean. Twelve plus years with this issue, she was unclean, period. And there's no way she could become clean. Leviticus 15, 19 through 20 says this. When a woman has a discharge, if her discharge in her body is blood, she shall continue in her menstrual impurity for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean till that evening. Everything also on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. And everything on which she sits will be unclean. So wherever she sits, whatever she touches, whatever person she touches, she is now made unclean. And she is unclean herself. And she's supposed to be unclean for a seven-day window. Well, guess what? If this thing doesn't stop, you unclean for 12-plus years. Imagine being disconnected from your community for 12-plus years. And basically saying, I can't come near you. You live on the outskirts of town. You just stay there. I don't even want to see you because you come next to me, you're going to make me unclean. She had exhausted all of her financial resources. She had a financial issue. And lastly, she had a fear of rejection. She had been rejected by her community, but even after she experiences the miracle, she's traumatized. She comes trembling to Jesus, not knowing how he's going to respond. And she immediately is captivated by fear. Now, these are all common fears, would you say not? Have any of you ever had a fear about your health? Anybody of you ever fear being alone? Any of you ever feared having financial ruin and ruining your life and not having enough money for retirement in the 401k and who knows what's going to happen with Social Security? Anybody ever you have the fear of rejection? Who likes getting rejected? These are all very common human fears. Here's a principle for you. Fear is an active emotion just like faith. Fear is an active emotion just like faith. Faith requires us to actively trust in something or someone. This woman hears about Jesus, so she hears the report. She has a choice to make. She's walking in fear because of all these different things. She has a choice to make. I've been rejected. I've exhausted all my financial resources. I'm in a health crisis. She has a decision to make. Is she going to continue to reside in the space of fear, or is she going to place her faith and do whatever she can do to get to Jesus? Is she going to make the effort to get to Jesus? And she's like, I heard Jesus is coming to town. I might be a little weak and I might be unclean, all that. I'm going to find out and I'm going to meet him. I'm going to come to see him. If I could just touch his garment, maybe I will be made well. So she activates her faith in that, so to speak. She has no other hope but Jesus. She is desperate. And sometimes the place of desperation, ladies and gentlemen, is where you and I need to be because we are so proud sometimes to call out to Jesus unless we are utterly desperate. Why is that? Why is it unless we're utterly desperate, sometimes we don't call out to Jesus? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that even for myself, why that's the case. 
A number of years ago, a movie came out back in 2002 called John Q. Anybody ever see John Q with Denzel Washington? That movie, this film? So in the movie, Denzel Washington plays a character by the name of John Archibald, whose son is in need of an emergency heart, plant, emergency heart transplant. John has insurance, but his insurance will not cover such an expensive surgery, and they're initially rejecting his son for coming on the list. John raises up a certain portion of money, and then all of a sudden they say, you don't have enough, and then they made a change to his policy, and all kind of other stuff happens, and then he doesn't have enough, and his son's not able to get the surgery. So what does he do? He holds the patients and doctors in the emergency room as hostages at gunpoint until his son gets on the transplant list and gets the surgery he needs. This is a desperate act of a father on behalf of his son because desperation can cause us to take extreme measures. Now, while I'm certainly not advocating the actions or response of the movie, what I am saying is that we see with this woman, she is desperate. And in desperation, she takes extreme measures. And in desperation, she does whatever she has to do to get to Jesus. In desperation, being physically weak, socially unaccepted, being broke, being unclean, she fights through the crowd, meaning every single person that she's touching on her way to touch Jesus is also unclean. In that sense, Jesus is unclean even when she touches him. And it doesn't matter because she is desperate and she's going to take a desperate measure to get to Jesus. She does whatever she has to do. It wasn't easy for her to do what she had to do, not only because of the things she was experiencing, but I believe she comes trembling before Jesus because for her to speak out in public was considered improper, and Jesus could have rebuked her then and there. She could have been rejected again. She could have experienced rejection again, and Jesus could have said, what are you doing touching me? But he didn't. She wasn't rejected. She wasn't humiliated. As a matter of fact, she was praised and she was healed. She was praised for her faith. Your faith is what's made you well. In front of everybody, and there's no doubt in my mind that the people who were at that scene knew who this woman was. They knew, oh yeah, she's the one who lives on the outskirts of town. She's all, we can't get near her. She's all messed up, you know, da 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 da. They knew exactly who she was, and here she is in the middle right there, and Jesus saying, this kind of faith, that's what made her well. As a testimony to everybody else who's around. Why are we afraid to come to Jesus? Fear is a constant battle in our lives, but when fear arises, I would pray that hopefully after today that faith would arise in our hearts as well. So let's summarize this for you. Our one true statement was this, that faith in Christ overcomes our deepest fears. So faith in Christ overcomes our deepest fears. We saw in this story a character study essentially of two different people in very desperate situations. One who is a father who's a religious leader, who by all accounts would not be talking to Jesus. And yet it doesn't matter because his daughter is dying. He throws himself at the feet of Jesus and pleads for her, him to do something. And in the midst of this whole entire chaotic scene, his daughter dies, and yet Jesus comes to the house. And when Jesus comes to the house, dead people don't come alive unless he's around. And all of a sudden his daughter arises and she awakes. And his father, and the father is there, forever seared into his mind, seeing the reality and the power of his of Jesus on display. We see this woman who's got this issue of blood for 12 plus years, rejected, financially in ruin. She has this health crisis. Every, she's lonely. All these things that are going on. And no matter how much of that she experienced, she puts all her eggs into the Jesus basket. He was her only hope. And in desperation, she takes extreme measures to get to Jesus. Because she, instead of acting on her fear, she activates her faith to overcome that fear. And she's willing to do what she needs to do to get to Jesus. I'm going to give you one walk away practice point today. And then I'm going to give you a very practical way you can respond as well today. Number one is I want to encourage you to search the scriptures. As I said, the words do not be afraid or do not fear in some form of context appear about a hundred plus times in the scripture. You could take the back of your Bible and do a concordance search and just look up the word fear. And I would encourage you to take some time and just be able to plunge through the scriptures and take some of those scriptures and encourage yourself with them, be able to work through them, maybe commit some of those to memory uh, as you process through it and you deal with what this thing means when we deal with uh, fear. But also I'd like to say this, is that if you're here today and you have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus, maybe you're afraid for what happens 
if today was the last day of your life. Maybe you're afraid of all these things we talked about, financial ruin, your health, those concerns. All of those concerns pale in comparison to the reality of what it means to that Jesus came to this earth, that he lived a perfect life, that he died upon the cross for our sins, and that when he was buried and he rose again, he secured our salvation. So when we place our faith and trust in him, we can overcome any of life's fears, but then also we can overcome the greatest fear and the greatest enemy, that is death. Because we have hope for life eternal. And if that's you today, I pray that you would make that decision today to follow Jesus. So I'm going to give you a very practical way that you can today be able to experience and be able to put what we just learned in practice. I told you for the last number of weeks that we're going to start incorporating prayer back into our services every Sunday. I'm going to ask our prayer team to come forward right now and our elders. And so what we're going to do is I want to encourage you is that if there is something genuinely right now, number one, if you want to come to Jesus, let today be the day. Today is the day of salvation. But number two is that if there is something that is in your heart right now where you are tremendously suffering from fear, allow somebody to come alongside with you and be able to pray with you. That doesn't make you broken. That doesn't make you less than. It makes you human who's going through a struggle right now. And we collectively together want to go before the feet of Jesus. And we believe that Jesus can intervene in your greatest fears. And so we want to give you an opportunity to do that. And what I'm going to ask you to do, congregation, in the midst of this, this isn't time just to spectate. What is happening right now, we're asking God to be with us. This is a holy moment. I'm going to ask you all to stand and we're going to worship. We're going to create a, this is a worship space. So if you don't want to come up for prayer, praise God. I would encourage you to do, one, I would encourage you to do a couple things. Pray for the people that are coming up. Just pray right where you are. And then also I want you to engage in worship. This isn't a time to watch. This is not a spectator thing. This is very real what we're doing right now. We want to ask God to intervene in the lives of people. And so I want to encourage you just to take the opportunity to be able to worship. So if you'd be so bold today, take the step of faith like Jairus did. Take the step of faith like that woman did and did whatever you can do to get to Jesus. As representations, we're not Jesus, but we're going to take you to him. And we'll pray with you that you may experience that today. So let's worship, guys. And guys, the altar is open. Please come forward and feel free to come for prayer. If you need prayer for anything, we'd love to be able to pray with you. Let's worship.
take an opportunity to be able to worship the Lord through giving, so um, as they're playing, if I can ask the ushers to come forward, and we're going to go ahead and worship in that way, and then we'll close out with our benediction. I'm really looking forward to continuing in this series, and next week we're going to talk about regret, and uh, I'm just praying that God will meet us in the midst of all of these, uh, these very difficult and very real things, so let me just pray over the offering. But Lord, we thank you that we can worship through giving. We thank you that you are the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and that you provide everything that we need. Uh, thank you for blessing this church, Lord, and just making all, uh, allowing us to meet all of our financial needs and obligations, Lord, that we may minister to the people who are here and those that are to come. And so, Lord, we worship you in this way. May you cause this to multiply for your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name.
say our benediction and get you dismissed and just pray over you so we see each other next week, Lord willing. So may the Lord go before you and to light your path and give you direction. May he go behind you to guide your steps. May he go beside you to keep you from stumbling. May he go above you to protect you. May he go within you to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. And may our Father in heaven always grant to you character that is greater than your gifts and humility that is greater than your influence. God bless you guys. Love you all so much. You are dismissed. We'll see you all next week.